growth is I'm all about numbers. Like I'm actually sitting with the data scientists and the PMs to look at previous tests. What does those results look like? What do we think the results from this look like? And how do we create a, a hypothesis that could get us these results back? Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pongpat. Today on our this episode, we have a very special guest. He's the lead product designer for Global Conversion at Netflix, Fonz Morris. Welcome to the show. What's up? What's up? Happy to be here. Happy to be here. Hello, everyone listening. Yeah. Can you briefly talk to us about what the title means and what designing for global conversion means at Netflix? Sure. So I'm on the growth team, which is a non-member team focused on converting users to become paid subscribers. So we focused on areas, the non-member homepage, which is what you see when you go to Netflix.com from a web or mobile web, as well as when you download the Android or iOS device, or what you see when you log on to Netflix on your television before you log in. So that's an member and that's the sign-up flow. And we're that recent number of the 200 million subscribers that we just hit, that's my team's win right there. We're always trying to increase the amount of users that we have on Netflix. So because we're a global company, we're always focused on trying to convert people everywhere we can. The United States, India, Asia, Australia, Europe. So we're always focused on getting more users, which is growth and globally. Yeah. So that's where the whole global conversion <laughs> comes yeah. into play. Yeah, I looked up the latest stat and you guys have crossed the 200 million mark. It's exactly, it's 203.67 million paid subscribers in the fourth quarter of 2020. Mm. And now we're in Q1 of 2021. So I imagine that's even a little bit more than that. So congrats on, on that success. You've always, you've been a growth designer for a while. That's why Netflix recruited you. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm a nice guy and I'm a great designer as well. So I would say all those things. All, all those things. Yeah. Yeah. But the growth uh, has something to do with it. Yeah. It, and you did it for Coursera, right? That yes, sir. Yep. Yeah. Prior to Netflix, I was at Coursera, but because I'm an entrepreneur and I've helped start two startups, I've always been focused on growth because that's the main goal of startups is to grow. So yeah. I've been a growth designer even before there was a title of growth designer. In some ways, I think maybe startups need to, mostly I hear a lot of startups needing designers for to improve the user experience, but very rarely do I hear of the role or there's growth marketer, growth hacker, but people don't really talk about growth designer. So maybe th those, I would say if there's a niche that one could be in a sea of UX designers, this is a pretty unique skill set that could be very valuable for a lot of startups. That's probably the best bit of information that you're going to give them this whole podcast, man. Yeah. That's super true. That's 100% true. That's most startups are looking for growth designers nowadays. If you go look on uh, Indeed or somewhere and type in growth designer or go to LinkedIn and type in growth designer, you're going to see a lot of companies looking for that because everybody's trying to scale. Yeah. In this episode, we're going to probably talk about how one gets into that. What are some of the things one can start learning how to do? What are how you got started in that and how you learned and, and what are the tools and the learning resources and how you learned and picked up that skill? You Do you have a, I understand? Yeah. 
I understand you have a background in computer science, right? Do you, do, you, yep. do you have a design background at all? No, I'm a self-taught designer. Actually, I do have a design background, but it wasn't from becoming a designer. It's because I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, which I think is one of the most design-centric places on the planet. When you think of, I grew up in Bed-Stuy, which is known for having fantastic brownstone architecture. I constantly saw the Empire State Building, all the World Trade Center, amazing monuments, the, the Brooklyn Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge, Central Park. I went, my school trips were to the MoMA and to the Brooklyn Natural History Museum. So I was exposed to design and art and, and culture and creativity from a kid. But once I got a little older, I thought I wanted to become an architect because I just was really fascinated with building things, but ended up going into computer science because a friend of mine's father told me that architects don't make a lot of money when they get started. <laughs> so I was like, I don't know if this is for me anymore. Let's see, this is the second podcast interview where somebody wanted to go into architecture and their parents said, don't get into that because they were an architect. Still love said, it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can relate to that a bit coming from Chicago. I think Chicago and New York mm -hmm. are two of the cities that have some of the most beautiful architecture in the U.S. Similar background to you, not having any formal design. We both uh, computer science students who self-taught design. Yep. Maybe we had grew up exposed to design with an appreciation or an eye for design, but not formally taught. You know, in your early career, how did you uh, get into design and how did you start teaching yourself design? Sure. I love that story. Like, I think this is the key to my success was in my senior year of college, my university got a grant from the state and they opened up a lab called the Digital Aquarium. And when I found out about it, I said, I don't want to go to the aquarium. I don't even like aquariums. Why would they waste money building that? But then when I went to the aquarium and looked, it was an actual fish kind of shaped room that was completely furnished with all new Mac and PC multimedia equipment, cameras, computers, all the software that you needed. And I just moved into the lab, brother, and taught myself everything. I was in there literally every single day for almost two years. Yeah, and, I, and that was my first introduction into digital design because I had access to all the resources. That's why resources are so important. Yeah, yeah. E exposure and resources, having the ability to get access to them. I think a lot of the early computer pioneers, if they somehow had, you know, like Bill Gates and stuff, they, they had early access to some of these early computers. Exposure is important. Exposure yeah, is important. Exposure. So yeah. when, when you're wondering where people are and how things worked out, just always make sure that you take a little time to think about what exposure had to do with that. Yeah, it's good. It's good call. So those are, did you start picking up design in what sense? Was it first graphic design or did you start? Yes. Thinking, yeah. Yes. Graphic design. You need a logo, <laughs> you need a business card. I actually started doing music videos first because I'm a hip hop guy and I just thought Hype Williams made some of the best music videos I had ever seen. But then I felt that the video production lane was a little saturated, but nobody knew about the graphic side or knew how to build websites or knew how to do anything of that nature. So that's what had me stop doing video production and focus more on graphic design. And then from graphic design, it evolved to web design. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I started getting into web design right away just because I was around the time of my, my college studies. 
it was the dot-com, first dot-com wave. So while I was in school doing computer science projects, it was Google popping up, Hotmail popping up, PayPal popping up. And I'm like, okay, got to get yeah, into maybe that. Maybe I should get into this. Maybe maybe I, I should get into that. that. I should learn how to make what they're making. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yep. So that, that so that's where I started as a graphic designer. And then that kind of morphed into web designer, like I said, and then a bunch of other disciplines after that. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned you started as an entrepreneur. You mentioned you started a couple companies. Tell me about those. And what did you learn? I learned that it's not all it's cracked up to be sometimes. <laughs> I learned that it's very liberating. I learned that it's hard to run a startup and still have that same stability that you have from working at a bigger company. But I also know that experience crafted me as a man and I wouldn't change anything from it. So my first company was a design, was from going to the lab, I got so good at design that I started a design agency and just started doing work all, all around the city for different companies. And then I started doing work nationally for people because this person heard about me and then this person. So that startup ended up blossoming and actually getting aqua hired by one of our clients who I didn't even know, but were venture capitalists out of Pennsylvania. So they aqua hired the design agency, brought us internal to do all of their design work, but they also put up angel investing for me to build my first product with a content management system way before Spotify and right after MySpace dropped, well, not dropped, but MySpace slowed down. That's when we were around it, like around 2007, 2008 was when we dropped Mars DNA and we did that for about five years, man. And I really thought that we we were so close to getting on, but we ended up running out of money and had to go back into corporate America. So that was my like first and second stint. My first design agency rolled into being a startup that built software. And then the same team that I raised that money with the first go, they raised another round for a different project that was Zoom before Zoom was big. And it was video conferencing that had sentiment analysis built in. So Mm. both of those projects, I think, were just a little too early, which like most startups are either your timing is perfect or you might be just a little too early. Yeah, yeah. Video, maybe bandwidth and video wasn't as important as, yeah. Just like the, man. Yeah. And then to see Zoom pop off as big as it did and video conference to go as big as it did, it was just like, wow, I can't believe we were so close twice. Uh, Yeah, right. And, you know, and then you have these chat behemoths, like WhatsApp and stuff back in my day, MSN, ICQ, like all all these things were were massive. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember that people nowadays probably not even interested in ICQ. That was I remember when I taught myself how to use ICQ. Straight up command line. Yeah, yeah. It's so old. Uh, it's know. like so old now. Like, why would you want to do command line? Haven't you heard this thing called GUI with all these pictures? Yeah. But uh, those were like the chat applications of the desktop era, but they totally missed the mobile era. They, they could have found their way into mobile, but for whatever reason, it was too early. Yeah. With the dust. Yeah. With the dust. So then, so when you were actually hired by the event, firm that had VC. Was mm-hmm. that how you got into becoming a design advisor for a bunch of VC firms? Is that how, how did you get no, into that? No, that, that has no, that came from, okay, prior to that experience, I had 
no experience with e- even funding or what an angel funding look like or anything investing. It was just something you saw on TV and there's this guy named Mark Zuckerberg who did it and he's like super rich now. I'm like, wow, maybe <laughs> I could do a startup one day. But the startup community was still so young then that I didn't really know what was up as well as I was so focused on my craft. I didn't want to be involved with the numbers. I don't want to be a part of the numbers. I don't worry about the numbers. I'm the right. product, the vision guy, the creative guy. Y'all handle the numbers. So at the early parts of my career, I didn't even really get, get involved in the money. Once we did the project the second time and the second time we ran out of money was when it piqued my interest to start to figure out, well, where does the money come from? How does the money work? Mm-hmm. How do you raise money? Why do you raise money? Who are the people with the money? Who are the people with the big amounts of money? And that's what kind of got me interested in just learning about venture capitalism period. And then I'm one of those type of people who just, I dive right in. So I just try to join as many VC programs as I could, meet as many people in the venture capital space. And then by doing that, they saw my growth experience and my design experience and said, hey, you might be able to advise some of our companies. And I was like, what, what, really? Yeah, actually, yes, I can advise. I actually can advise some of your companies. And I think that was what got me started was being able to get my foot in the door a little bit into VC and then making connections to where now they started to give me access to their portfolio companies. Got it. Did you see some of the upside from some of these portfolio companies? How was compensation? I did not see any upside from it. I didn't charge. It was just straight up advising of just me, uh, me getting started. I would say yeah. now I'm at that. Now I've reached that point where once I first got started, I just wanted to learn. I just yeah. like I wasn't even really focused on the money. I couldn't believe that I had elevated to that point now where startups actually want to meet and talk with me and think I can help them solve these problems. Yeah. So that realization had to happen first before I even thought about the conversation. So now that I've been doing this for almost two years now, the advising are the opportunities that come through where companies offer to pay and things of that nature yeah. want to offer equity, but you got to be specific with that, what you take and time management and responsibilities and stuff like that. But I'm just personally honored to even be in the position to go from, like I said, walking into the digital aquarium, thinking it was a real aquarium to now startups <laughs> wanting to pay me to talk to me and for access to my experience and advice. Yeah, you've learned a lot and that's why they're seeking you out. Tell us a little bit about some of the work that you did at Coursera and how you helped them grow. What what was the work like? Oh, sure. That was fantastic. Coursera is, Coursera, I will always have love for Coursera for various reasons. One reason is I'm a self-taught designer and lifelong learner. So I love online education platforms. I think it's the way to democratize education. Fantastic. I'm a proponent of it. I was using the platform before I even got the job there. But they also believed in me and gave me the position and relocated me and my family from Philadelphia to to California. So that was fantastic as well. So I was able to come into the door at Coursera and focus on how do we get more people registered as users on Coursera, but then also how do we get more people enrolled in courses? Mm -hmm. And that's where you start to see 
the numbers matter immediately. The data matters immediately with that. And that's where you now start getting into this whole growth space where it's not just what it looks like, it's how did it perform? How do you want it to perform? What does success look like? What does, I don't wanna say failure, but what does non-success look like for something where in some of my previous jobs, I wasn't that tied into the data. So Coursera allowed me to really see that, oh, there's a whole nother layer of design that I can elevate to. And some of the projects that I worked on there was redesigning our homepage, which was an amazing accomplishment because we had tried to redesign it multiple times before. And each time the numbers were went down and they reverted back. So all the way up to 2019, the Coursera homepage still felt outdated. So being able to come in and have a blank slate to try to figure out what's best for the company, what's best for the user, how do I make this scalable? How do I make this feel inclusive, informative, and still convert people was a big achievement. One, it was a big project, but to be able to have successfully launched it and to have had one of the best months that Coursera had ever had, and we didn't have to roll back was a major win for me for that one. So the redesign of the Coursera homepage, the helping launch of the degree platform framework where you can earn a degree from Coursera. And we wanted to really ramp up how many degrees we offered, but we needed a, a way to showcase those degrees. So instead of just continuing to build custom websites, like custom pages, I built a framework where we went from putting out one to two pages a month to almost two to three pages a week because the framework was so flexible and so scalable. And we took all of the learnings from the previous pages and just made this whole new system that now anybody who wasn't just a designer or engineer, anybody could build these pages. Yeah. And that's the type of growth that Coursera needed at that moment because the degrees were gonna be a major part of revenue. So the homepage was major for revenue because that's B2C, that's where we get our traffic from, as well as that's where we link you to our enterprise side, which was on the rise. But then the degree platform was another major revenue source. So being able to work on major pieces that, that actually helped and to now know that Coursera is on its way to go IPO is just fantastic. Yeah. When you mentioned this framework, how does that relate to, say, the design system? Or is this part? Of, is the design system part of the framework? Are they one and the same thing? No, they're actually not even related. Okay. But they're, they overlap, but they're not related. The framework was more of, we need, okay, we already have Coursera.com, but we don't have pages specific. So we have Coursera.com, which is a big web app. We have these individual degree pages that are custom, that are literally almost a developer built each one, one by mm. one. We're trying to scale out so many pages. There's no way one, one, two, three developers could ever keep up with the amount Enough. of pages that we wanted to ramp up. So the framework was trying to decide, okay, working with engineering, do we need to move to another technology that would allow us to build these templates that now will have a back-end CMS system that as long as the user knows what assets or what information that they need, they can publish and launch these on their own. Got so it, got it. 
the design system on top of that, where you didn't have to worry about fonts or colors or sizes, because all that stuff was already determined for the design system. So I would say the framework was here and then the design system laid on top to help make the styling and mm -hmm. keeping the design consistent across all these different pages that the last piece I'll add, each university had their own branding. So they would want their own artwork, their own colors and things of that nature. So the platform still needed to be flexible and scalable at the same time to appease all these different brands all across the world. It's a good framework for thinking about growth then also like thinking about these systems, right? Like thinking about a system, like you mentioned, oh, two, three designers, developers had to manually create these pages that doesn't scale you can't grow like that so you needed a, a cms a back-end cms so that you can have different states or different schools can have their own degrees and they can launch their own and you can just mm -hmm. have more so so you, you think about growth you have to thinking think think about automation tooling and scaling from tons, the bat yep. yeah tons, tons of system thinking tons yeah. of system thinking where right. before i keep using words like custom is because custom is not scalable custom Correct. is usually not a system and that's where a lot of designers get started it's let me build your website it's like right. okay your fine, page but, <laughs> your degree page. but now yeah. what about eight people come and they want all websites it's going to take you forever to build a custom website so that's the epiphany i had with the first startup i told you where when i first started i was doing custom websites when i got the investment i wanted to build a system where now instead of us trying to build individual websites for different artists let's provide them with templates and let's roll out these pages way faster so yeah. that was when i started to realize that to be successful I should have more of a systems thinking style in design. And yeah. once you add the system thinking and the data, now you already like blast off. So that's one framework for thinking about growth is systems thinking. How do I build a system that can just scale and scale so that I can onboard more schools, more degrees, more pages? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that similar work to, to what Netflix is doing then? Not 100%. It's not apples to apples. I would yeah. say at Netflix, we're always thinking on scale. We have to think on scale. Netflix is way bigger than Coursera, right, right. user-based-wise. So scale so, from day one. Right. right. So, yes, I'm always thinking systems thinking. I just did a project recently that instead of us trying to get one project out the door, we I took a second and said, hold on. Now feels like the chance for us to maybe be able to build a bigger system that would allow us to have more flexibility, easier to update this stuff. This could have a lot longer longevity if we think about this longer than just right now. So I would say yes, as far as the system thinking goes, but the level of complexity and the kind of problems that that I'm responsible for at Netflix versus what I was at at Coursera, that's the difference. But the system thinking, that never goes away. Yeah. Besides systems thinking, what are... You know, teach us something about designing for growth. What are someone who's just getting into this? We, we talked about data. Yeah. I'm just going to cut you off. I hate to be rude and cut you off on your no, own podcast, no, but data, D-A-T-A, -A, data. That's the major new piece that gets added into growth that a lot of designers prior to working in growth don't have a lot of experience with. Yeah, yeah. I would say a lot of designers rarely look at the data. 
growth is I'm all about numbers. Like I'm actually sitting with the data scientists and the PMs to look at previous tests. What does those results look like? What do we think the results from this look like? And how do we create a, a hypothesis that could get us these results back? And then how many tests do we need to do to be able to try to really figure out what this data needs to be? So there's a whole new layer of numbers and metrics that get added into growth that when I previously was just a visual designer or graphic designer, I just wasn't even really interested in. Yeah. Are there any general principles of what is good UX when it comes to growth? Yes. I think you should just be getting people, one, you should always have immense user empathy. You can get to the point where you're not designing what you think looks good. You're designing what you think the user will think looks good. And you're also thinking about, is this problem, did you just solve this problem for them, the user? Like I'm always in the user's shoes now. When I first started as a designer, it was about me. I, I was sensitive about my work. I wanted to be the star. I wanted to be the front. Look at all of these amazing designs. Now, more senior in my career, I'm more focused on, did I solve this user problem? And by doing that, I'm always, at least getting the job done as opposed to just making amazing pieces, which are, which is part of it. But if it doesn't solve that user's problem, then it didn't really do what it was supposed to. So I stay very focused on what that problem is. And I try to have as much empathy and use the resources to fully understand that problem as well, meaning user researching and things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned what is was this, what is the job it's trying to do, or if that frame there's a framework, right? Jobs to be done. What are you mm-hmm. hiring this person or this software to do to fix, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and that's are you one. doing that? And, Did yeah. you do that? And a Did. lot of times it does not get done. And to answer your question, also, I'll tell you the most amazing UI that we all have ever interacted with: the Google search form. That's the best UI in the history of web to me. I you can't tell me another piece of UI that's that simple and that is that impactful that has not had to change over years because it's that good at what it does. You know what I mean? Yeah. That yeah. Google homepage has been the same for years. That's UI. It's not just about how many buttons you got, how much text and how much JavaScript and stuff you got on there. It's about, are you solving that problem for the user? And the Google form does. You get there, you type what you're searching for, within less than a second, you are ready where you need to go. And that's my job as the designer to get you where you need to go as fast and frictionless as possible. Does that also then cover stuff outside of, like where does growth begin and end? Once they've signed up and logged in, does growth end there? Um, No, it keeps going because remember, people leave the platform and we want you to come back. So you still rejoin, like we want you to join, which is great, but if you leave, we want you to come back. So rejoin still goes under growth. So it's a cycle life cycle pretty much of a customer yeah so hopefully it never ends in my opinion as uh, someone who's been with netflix since forever since their two dvds i actually know people still on the dvd plan because they don't like smart tvs and being on the internet and having their yeah. tvs connected man it's so interesting to think about how many different users netflix has so when we do our user calls Man, the stories you hear and the different, like recently I just did some calls and we did some in Australia, we did some in Argentina and Italy and France and Thailand and 
Mexico. And it was just so interesting to be able to get access. And it just allowed you to take a step back and think. There's a lot of people that use Netflix. Yeah. So you need to be really conscious of all of these people when we're making these decisions that we think are beneficial for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it, are they all the conversations in English or do you have an interpreter? How's that work? Yep. The whole, see, that's the thing. I'll be honest. I'll give like a little transparency to the audience. There's benefits of working at bigger companies. There's benefits of working at smaller companies. At a smaller company, you get a lot more control. You may be able to have a bigger title and all that type of stuff. When you go to a bigger company, you get access to more resources. So for Netflix, yes, the ones that were in the United States, English, no problem. All of our international ones where English may not be the main language, interpreter built in, where we were managing it through Zoom and still communicating as a team on chat and on Slack. And it was a seamless experience. It was, I was able to interview, not interview, but be a part of interviews for almost eight different people in Thailand and as well as in Argentina who spoke Spanish and I felt completely involved. So yes, we use the interpreter, but how many startups can can do that. So right. that's what I'm saying. That's one of the benefits of when you work at a bigger company, the resources allow you to take your skill set and your career to the next level. Yeah. Tell us the role of A-B testing. So data is one, right? Systems thinking is one. Data is number two. I know A-B testing and testing in general is a big, big deal at Netflix. Every single user on Netflix is in some kind of a test. We literally have to reach out to engineering if we want to go into this magic state of you're not in any test. That's how much we focus on A-B testing because we want to make sure we have the right solution. And we think doing multiple iterations of something and picking the best one based off the data from that is a smarter way for us to build a company. So we A-B test most things. A couple of tiny projects you'll consider as just do but when you're on a growth team, when you think of moving a button on a page on Netflix could result in a four or five million dollar revenue loss. So we don't just you do never things, right. right. Every little change increase of font size or move a button or take this down. No, it doesn't work like that. Behind the scenes, we do a bunch of micro tests to see if we took that out, how big of an impact did that have? Because once we roll this out to 200 million people, we don't want to have any issues. So the A-B testing is super important, but I love it. It's really helped me become more of a sophisticated designer. So at Netflix, A-B testing means it actually stands for always be testing. Pretty much everything. <laughs> like everybody brings up testing. And it's so amazing because everybody's so smart at Netflix, but it's not just the data scientists that'll bring up testing. The content designer will bring up, do we need to test this copy? The product designers, do we need to test this experience? The engineers will will act, do we need to test this? Everybody's always so aware of the testing culture at Netflix that it really does allow us to run a lot of tests, but make a lot of smart, calculated decisions. Yeah. I would say it's almost a much purer form of UX design because a lot of it, I would say gets into the very subjective, touchy-feely, oh, this looks good. doesn't matter According whether it who? looks, yeah, does it work? Does it Beauty's perform? in the eye of the beholder, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Trust me, I've definitely had visual experiences that I thought was fantastic. And the next iteration didn't include any of them in there because it wasn't <laughs> it didn't work. as good as I thought. It just didn't work. And I thought it was fantastic. I thought this is exactly what people wanted. And I think that's the good part about working at a company like Netflix is I'm learning just how much more I still need to learn in my field. And it's just been fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of stories of web design and with respect to copy. I think uh, modern web designers like simple, clean, lots of white space. But sometimes the stuff that converts the best, just a long form, lots of copy, lots of product description, lots of testimonials, right? Lots of people like me I can relate to. Mm-hmm. That's what converts versus, oh, wow, that people, I thought people, the designers are like, oh, they just want simple bullet points. Yeah, I think it's about finding that medium at certain points. If you look at the Netflix homepage, it's not a lot of information on there. I don't want to distract you at that. And I think that goes to understanding the goals of the project. Are you trying to inform? Mm -hmm. Are you trying to convert? Because if you're trying to convert, then you want to make that as frictionless as possible. And you probably don't want a whole lot of information because whether people get lost or get sidetracked or don't convert. But then if you want to inform, you don't want to give me this clean, super wide experience with five lines of copy. And I'm trying to learn something about a healthcare product. So I think that then comes to where the designer has to decide what's best at that moment. Is it a light, clean, modern experience or is it a content heavy experience? But even if it is content heavy as a designer, I still think it's your job to massage it and put it in a way where it'll be easily digestible for the user. So I've seen some amazing websites with a lot of copy that content that convert. I've also seen websites with a lot of copy and content that don't convert. Yeah it wasn't the right experience for that problem. When it comes to startups, starting to think about testing, are there any tools you recommend that really help you out versus like, obviously, I'm sure Netflix probably has some sort of homebrew A-B testing yeah. platform because they're so sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just the basics like usertesting.com. It's a great platform, man. That's what I use at Coursera. And it's a really robust platform where you can do super focused user testing or you can just do basic. Like I'm just going to put up some wireframes and I'm not even going to pick who my demographic is. I just want to see if anybody even understands this. So you can go super lo-fi or you can go super hi-fi and put a full working prototype in there and watch people interact with it and see how they perform on the website like that. So I would say for something, if you're a startup and you don't have the biggest budget and you might not have an in-house data scientist, definitely learning how to use platforms like user testing, as well as doing your own user testing, where if you have a couple of people that you want to be able to share your work with, share your work. Like A-B testing doesn't always have to be super fancy. Yes, it should be, and it can be, but at sometimes. A-B testing is also me just showing you two things and saying, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? To where it could be way more of a local A-B testing, where it's people in your household or your power users on your platform. It doesn't have to be this amazing, over-the-top analytic system either. When you're doing testing generally, what's the percentage of the population that you're testing for or how many tests do you run before you decide, hey, this is a good valid test? Tests are made up of cells and the tests are based off of hypotheses. So if you and I decide 
we have problem A and we think there needs to be, we think there's four possible options we can solve this with and we don't know what's the strongest option then that means that test is going to have five cells because you always have to have control, which is the live, which is production now. So then you would have a five cell test. You would run that test depending on how many users you need it allocated because we have so many users. It doesn't take us that long to get enough people into the test to be able to really say this is enough data to make a decision. So Based off those five cells, we will run them, get the numbers back. If anything is flat, then that's technically good. If it's up, that's even better. But we're always looking for something to be negative. And any of the ideas that's negative, scrap those, the ones that's positive. Do we have a strong enough signal to just roll this out? Or do we need to do maybe one more test with less options that focus on this one and this one? And then based off those results, we really know what's going on. So I think the problem will determine how many tests you need in that. And if you get a clear enough read after the test to determine, we don't need to run any more tests, let's mm. just roll this out. Yeah. yeah. What's the, I guess, what's the process like? Is it a, imagine there's some feelings of validation when you get something right. And is there like yeah. any celebration around that or high fives? Yeah. <laughs> always we're always celebrating the wins because you never know when they're going to come from but you also like i said you have some projects that you think are going to do well and they don't where i just had a test recently that we all thought it was going to be self five because it just felt like the best experience and it ended up being the first one that we scrapped and oh, then wow. we ended up doing another version where we didn't even go as far down the line as that and that's what made me say as the lead designer on the team I always need to keep my simple solution. Yeah, it's okay to be at Netflix and go for sophisticated, complicated, over-the-top ideas, but there's still a lot of value in a really strong MVP that's focused on the foundations. And it was funny to see this test go that and go to the fanciest point and then come all the way back to the most simplest and us think that was the true best UX for the user opposed to the fancy way. Yeah. In a way, it's not surprising. I, I know like I've spent months and years on projects that don't go anywhere. And then I'll spend a weekend on a project. And of course, for whatever reason, that thing blows up Take and off. people love it. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you, you never know, man. Never know. Yeah. But that's why you got to keep trying. And that's why iteration is so important. And that's why design thinking is so important. And that's why user empathy is so important because you should always be trying things out. You, yeah. you never know what's going to, Hey, so you keep trying different things. You keep talking to users, try things, share with users, try things, share with users until you really get that strong enough signal to know this is the way to go. Yeah, yeah. We, we have a slide in our capabilities deck. That is the UX process. You ideate, come up with solution, you get validation, and then you go back to the ideate, right? Like you tweak mm -hmm. it, that, that worked, okay, or didn't work, whatever, you ideate. Yep. And very- That is the two flow. Yeah, that is it. It's funny to be at this point now where I can say that flow and I have to look at a slide or anything because I don't have to remember that flow. That is the flow. That is what I do every day at work. So it's interesting to see something that I used to study become second nature. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of organizations see as design as a one step, like in a waterfall of, okay, we developed this, 
put a designer on it, it's done, ship it. And then it's forget about the so, designer until there's another feature. <laughs> that's so wrong. And they pay the price thinking like that. That yeah. is the wrong way. So all my startups that's listening, if that's how your company's currently running or big company, don't run like that. Don't, don't that's do that. not good. <laughs> Yeah. So to recap, right, there's a system thinking, there's data, mm -hmm. there's testing, and then mm -hmm. just iterate. Mm -hmm. Iterate. And there's one other piece that I have to say is it's communication, man. I work with so many cross-functional people. I don't even work with a lot of designers, honestly, because there's so many other people on the team I have to work with. I have to work with the data scientists, I have to work with the content designer. I have to work with the PM. I have to work with the front end engineer. I have to work with the back end engineer. I have to work with the localization team. I have to work with so many, so many different teams that if I wasn't able to communicate, it doesn't matter how strong of a visual designer or what that is because Netflix relies heavy on communication. So I would say you have to add that to that list because you're going to be talking so much to people, explaining your, your ideas, critiquing other people's ideas, all of that type of stuff. Yeah, designer, design doesn't work in a silo. It, it really no. has to interoperate and touch so many things. It does. And I mean, you're the center point, honestly. You're the center point. Engineering can't do what they need to do without design. Data scientists can't do what they need to do without design is really integral. So because of that, a lot of people will be needing information from you and need your input and need you to make decisions. So always know that. And I think the higher up you go in your career, the more cross-functional partners you'll have. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. This is such a very information-packed episode. I think people it's are going really... Oh, we have fast. about 10 minutes left. I know, right? Oh, there goes an hour. Me. Just, just like... Me. I thought it was over that quick. No, no, it's it's like oh, it's, you know, we're time. coming up on uh, we're coming up on the hour. I feel like the time just flew by in this episode. It did. It's it amazing. Did. No, I it love did. this. I love this. Um, it's it's so fun. And I, I could keep going, but I got another one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I wanted to take the time to also acknowledge that, you know, aside from being a great designer with in-demand skills from startups and, and, and big corporations, you're giving how we connected is because we you're giving a lot back to the community. Can you tell us about some of that work? And yeah, yeah, for sure. man, I currently have four mentees and somebody just asked me if I wanted to join <laughs> another one. So I'm about to have five. I'm just all about mentoring, man, and being yeah. being a inspiration to my community and and I advocate for diversity in design because I didn't really have a lot of people to look up to when I started my design career, but I know the value in that. I did have mentors though. I think mentors are extremely important. So that's why I always want to be a mentor and it's very important to me. I've just, three of my mentees just got jobs. So that just made us all feel so good to think that when I first met them, they were trying to figure out how to get a job and we hugging it together. So to see them and they're all from underrepresented communities and me being from an underrepresented community, I love being able to be a champion for that community or a supporter of that community. So that's why I do as many talks as I can. If you reach out to me on LinkedIn, I'm going to respond, sharing links, liking people's tweets, reaching out to people. I'm networking like crazy. I'm networking like I just started because 
I think I have an opportunity to make a big impact in design and in the black community in design. So I'm really putting a lot of energy to make sure that I touch as many people as I can. Yeah. Well, this is one of the reasons we're doing this uh, podcast and, and why I sought you out is I I want us pe- people to have more role, role models, people of color, people from minorities. You're a person of color who's reached the, I would say, the top echelon of design, designing for Netflix that, yeah, high five. But, you know, <laughs> you're now helping other people rise up or you're reaching down versus trying to reach up and, and helping pulling people up. And that's an amazing story. And that's why I wanted to be supportive of this and bring you in. And hopefully if this exposes you, someone else to to you and they can get that inspiration, see you as a role model, someone to aspire to and and even reach out. That to me is a win for this episode. Oh yeah, for sure, man. Anybody that that listens that me just doing this is a win because it's just another bump for my confidence to have. Because remember, like I have a Brooklyn sweatshirt on right now. I still look at myself as young Fawn from Brooklyn, not, oh, I'm a lead at Netflix or this, that. So I'm still extremely humbled and honored when I think strangers who are respected in the industry want to reach out to me and hear my story or meet me or bring me onto their platform. So thank you so much for the opportunity, man. I was really excited when you reached out and we had a lot of great talks before this. And I think that's why this all went so smoothly, but I was really honored and proud to be here today. Oh, thank you so much. And I want to, I would say we'll link it in the show notes, follow Fonz. He's working on a book. Yeah. And uh, a book coming and, uh, soon. Yeah. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. And a design intro course, right? Yep. Stay tuned as well. You, yeah. You definitely sprinkling a little bit of info out there to the community. Yeah. Yes. I have a design intro course coming up. I'm still trying to figure out the logistics of the shooting, but I have the curriculum figured out. And then I'm actually working with a company right now to get this first book out the door. So hopefully 2021 will be a chance for me to branch into other forms of expressing myself besides just design. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if this wasn't like a one hour long commercial for the design course, because uh, like we learned so much in the hour, I don't know what else is. So <laughs> I, might, I might need a dis- coupon code from you later. <laughs> oh, track. no, you get the free one. No, you get the autograph copy of the book with the smiley face in it. And then no, this is the for tracking. This is for A-B testing to see what oh, works. Oh, <laughs> OK. OK. So if we go from that perspective, then yes. <laughs> I will send me two codes. We're going to do a test. I want to see how the people actually came from your podcast so I can say, (laughs) I need to do more podcasts with you, man. You have a nice little flow. So, yes, definitely, definitely, definitely. Alphonse, it's been a pleasure. Thank thank you so much for appearing. And uh, we really Thank you for having me. Yes, and let's stay in contact, man. And I will be one of the first people listening to this when it goes live. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What is UX? If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guests and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one.